By the year 2400 BC, the fertile plains of southern Mesopotamia, what today makes up a large part of the country of Iraq, were dotted with many distinct and fairly large city-states. Their tens of thousands of inhabitants, whom we today call the Sumerians, were a proud and cultured people, and rightfully so. Within the span of just a millennium, their ancestors had accomplished a great deal. One could say that they had given birth to civilization itself. The early Sumerians had taken the barren, parched deserts that once surrounded their small settlements and given them life by creating the first mega farms in history. Good harvest during years of plenty created surpluses of grain that could be stored for times of economic uncertainty and scarcity. Such surpluses led to increases in the population and ultimately the first cities and urban spaces, many of which by the 3rd millennium BC contained tens of thousands of people. The largest of these cities was Uruk, but there were also several other prominent ones not too much smaller in size, including Ur, Kish, Lagash, Nippur, Eridu, Adab, and Oma. The earliest form of writing, which we today call cuneiform, had also developed here. Initially used for tracking commodities, worker rations, and other administrative purposes, over time, the cuneiform writing system was expanded to better represent the rich vocabulary of the Sumerian language. And soon, the proclamations and deeds of kings, as well as prayers, proverbs, and eventually, at least one law code, were committed to the written word. The years between 2900 to about 2334 BC, which scholars call the early dynastic period of Sumer, saw the crystallization of what we today identify as Sumerian civilization. Archaeological excavations reveal that at least those towards the top of ancient Sumer's social hierarchy lived lives of luxury, as can be seen from some of the monuments and grave goods that have been uncovered at sites such as Uruk and Ur. Though much of the material culture unearthed by archaeologists in the past two centuries highlights many of the great engineering and artistic achievements of Sumerian civilization, many within that society, perhaps the majority, suffered greatly. In at least some city-states and kingdoms, those with great power often abused those without. Written evidence of this comes from document fragments dating to the reign of King Urukagina of Lagash, who according to one chronology, ruled between the years 2351 to 2342 BC. According to his own account, Urukagina came to power after decades of rule by a corrupt priesthood that had appointed one of their own, named Lugalunda, to be king of Lagash. If texts from his time are indeed accurate, then Lugalunda's oppression of the common people of Lagash had reached new heights of cruelty. Just how Urukagina replaced Lugalunda isn't stated, but the few inscriptions we have attributed to him make it seem that he had the support of the masses. 
The text from one of his inscriptions tells us that among other abuses, he banned the men in charge of the boatmen from seizing the boats. He banned the head of the shepherds from seizing the donkeys and sheep. He banned the man in charge of the fisheries from seizing the fisheries. Though Urukagina's heart may have been in the right place, it was too little, too late. The reformist king ruled for only nine years, which may have not been enough time to reverse the damage that had been done during the prior decades. And the new ruler of the neighboring kingdom of Uma, Lagash's centuries-old rival, took notice. His name was Lugal Zagezi. Not much is known about Lugal Zagezi's life before he became king, but during his second regnal year, he attacked and ultimately conquered the kingdom of Lagash and burned, plundered, and destroyed its capital of Girsu, including the great temple of its patron deity, the god Ningirsu. It was the ultimate catastrophe for Lagash, its people, and its god, as a text from one of the kingdom's scribes later recorded. He, Lugal Zagezi, has ruined the barley field of Ningirsu as much as had been plowed. Because the man of Uma destroyed the bricks of Lagash, he committed a sin against Ningirsu. He, Ningirsu, will cut off the hands which had been lifted against him. It is not the sin of Urukagina, the king of Girsu. May Nidaba, the personal goddess of Lugal Zagezi, the Ensi of Uma, make him bear all these sins. Lagash, though, was probably not alone in its troubles, and it's very likely that there was instability in many parts of ancient Sumer. Such circumstances may have also made these areas ripe for conquest. We don't know the political and economic situation of every major kingdom and city-state in Sumer at the time, but it's clear that regardless of what it may have been, Lugal Zagezi embarked on a massive military campaign to bring the entire region under his control. According to an inscription found on the fragments of a vase from the city of Nippur, which was the home of the great sanctuary of the god Enlil and arguably the holiest site in all of Sumer, the conquering king of Uma boasted the following. When Enlil, the king of all the lands, had given the kingship of the land to Lugal Zagezi, had directed him the eyes of all the people of the land from east to west, had prostrated all the people before him, then all the people from the lower sea, along the Tigris and Euphrates, to the upper sea, directed their feet toward him. From east to west, Enlil gave him no rival. The people of all the lands lie peacefully in the meadow under his rule. The land rejoiced under his rule. All the sovereigns of Sumer and the Enses of all the foreign lands bowed down before him in Uruk. Such a vase was probably a votive offering to Enlil and placed in the Eker, his holy sanctuary in Nippur so that generations far into the future, 
would know about the great deeds of Lugal Zagezi. The line from the lower sea along the Tigris and Euphrates to the upper sea directed their feet towards him means that the people from what's today the Persian Gulf throughout Mesopotamia and up to the shores of the Mediterranean Sea recognized Lugal Zagezi, the king of Uma, now based in Uruk, as their ultimate overlord. The later chronicle known as the Sumerian King List states that Lugal Zagezi ruled for about 25 years. For most people in Sumerian society, there was probably little change with regard to the region's day-to-day -day activities. But at the political level, things would never be the same. For Lugal Zagezi had just united more territory under one roof than any ruler in history. Such a claim is currently impossible to verify, because, other than the inscriptions found on the vase fragments, no other evidence backing them up has ever been uncovered. If he actually did do as his inscriptions state, then he would have created the first empire in history. If this was indeed the case, then posterity hasn't given him credit for doing so. In fact, that honor would go to another whose birth name isn't known, but would later on in life go by Sharuki or Sharukin, meaning something like true or legitimate king. Most of us today know him as Sargon of Akkad. There are relatively few inscriptions and monuments attributed to Sargon from his own time, and nearly all of them mention him in passing, let alone tell us much about him. One, for example, comes from the seal of a scribe named Kutushtu, and simply mentions his name along with that of his daughter, the princess Enheduanna. Enheduanna, daughter of Sargon, Kitushtu, the scribe, her servant. A similar one comes from Enheduanna's hairdresser and simply reads, Enheduanna, daughter of Sargon, Ilum Palil is her hairdresser. There's also an inscription on a mace dedicated to him. Tushara of the Abzu Banda, Igal Isi, the temple administrator of Zabalam dedicated this object for the well-being of Sargon, king of Agade. Fortunately for us, later Babylonian scholars and scribes made written copies of any Akkadian inscriptions they found pertaining to Sargon and his descendants. Many of them tell specifically where the text was sourced from, and even the exact part of the monument where the inscription was found. Without these, much of what we know about Sargon and his line of kings would have been lost to us. There are also several stories and legends about Sargon that were compiled in the centuries following his death. Many scholars view such traditions with a good deal of skepticism, though most of them admit that there are probably many kernels of historical truth within them. Regardless of their veracity, they are the best narratives of Sargon's life that we currently have, and illustrate his larger-than-life persona while also highlighting his humble origins. One such story is known as the birth legend of Sargon. It's an autobiographical account of his life, 
part of which reads, I am Sargon, the mighty king, king of Akkad. My mother was a high priestess. I did not know my father. My father's brother occupies the mountains. Azupiranu is my city, situated on the bank of the Euphrates. My mother, the high priestess, conceived me. In secrecy, she bore me. She placed me in a reed basket. She sealed my opening with bitumen. She gave me to the river, from which I could not come forth. The river carried me. To Aki, the water-drawer, it brought me. Aki, the water-drawer, brought me forth when he dipped his bucket. Aki, the water-drawer, raised me as his adopted son. Aki, the water-drawer, made me his gardener. While I was a gardener, Ishtar loved me, and I reigned as king. Sargon was in Akkadu, or Akkadian, meaning that he was part of a group whose members spoke an Eastern Semitic language that we today call Akkadian. The word Semitic in this case refers to a distinct family of languages. Akkadian is also unrelated in its origin and grammar to Sumerian. The Akkadian homeland, known as Akkad, was just north of Sumer in what's today central Iraq, specifically in and around the Diyala River Valley. Then, as it is now, it was not the most hospitable of places to live. The summers were dry and scorching hot, with few, if any, clouds, let alone rain, to provide any respite from the heat. On the other hand, winters in Akkad could be bitter cold, and perhaps due to the unforgiving climate, Akkad was not densely populated. The Akkadians themselves had no record of their ancestry or where they came from before they arrived in Akkad, at least none that has been mentioned in any known text. However, by their language, which is an Eastern Semitic dialect similar to those once spoken in parts of the ancient Levant, they may have come from some place further to the west of what's today modern Iraq. Not much is known about the early Akkadians, but it's believed that they lived side by side with the Sumerians in many places for several generations before the birth of Sargon. There are several Sumerian language tablets that mention people with Akkadian-sounding names that were working in agriculture and a few other professions in various Sumerian cities. But other than this, there's little mention of them in written texts dating to the early dynastic period of Sumer. Lugalzagezi held control over all of Sumer and other territories that he had recently conquered with the help of Enses, or governors, who ruled on his behalf. While some of them may have come from the ranks of his trusted advisors, others were probably the original rulers of their respective domains who may have simply submitted to Lugal Zagezi in order to avoid losing their positions and their heads. According to a piece of literature known as the Sumerian Sargon legend, one of these men was Urzababa, the ruler of the historically significant city of Kish. 
The Sumerian Sargon legend is not a historical document, but rather most likely a work of fiction written down at least two and a half centuries after the events it describes occurred. However, once again, there might be some truth to at least some of it. In the tale, Sargon seems to have done quite well for himself, rising up from a simple gardener to the position of royal cupbearer for Kish's ruler, Urzababa. This was a very prestigious position in those days. We're later told that Urzababa had a bad dream that terrified him, and so he did the following. He was troubled. He was disturbed like a fish living in brackish water. It was then that the cupbearer of Izina's wine house, Sargon, lay down not to sleep, but lay down to dream. In the dream, Holy Inanna drowned Urzubaba in a river of blood. The sleeping Sargon groaned and gnawed the ground. When Urzubaba heard about this groaning, Sargon was brought into the presence of Urzubaba, who said, Cupbearer, was a dream revealed to you in the night? Sargon answered his king, My king, this is my dream which I will tell you about. There was a young woman who was as high as the heavens and as broad as the earth. She was firmly set as the base of a wall. For me, she drowned you in a great river, a river of blood. The Sumerian Sargon legend informs us that Urzababa interpreted the dream to mean that Sargon would overthrow him. He tried to get rid of him by ordering one of his metalsmiths to kill him, but Inanna intervenes to protect Sargon, and the plot fails. In his second attempt to get rid of him, Urzababa sent the unsuspecting Sargon to Lugal Zagezi with the letter that when opened would instruct him to have Sargon killed. The legend goes on to tell us, In those days, writing on tablets certainly existed, Wrapping tablets in clay envelopes certainly did not exist. King Urzababa had a tablet made for Sargon that would bring about his own death. He sent him off with it to Lugal Zagezi. The rest of the story is missing, so we don't know the details about what happened next. But Lugal Zagezi, being involved in a plan attempting to kill Sargon, may have been the initial cause of hostility between the two. Again, the Sumerian Sargon legend is a literary text, not a historical one. Such stories may have been made up later to give Sargon, who as far as we know was a commoner, the justification for usurping Urzababa's and later Lugalzagezi's throne. But, like other legends, there is probably some truth to this one. Sargon may indeed have held the prestigious position of royal cupbearer, which would have made him a palace insider and known to several important and influential people within the court at Kish. He must have also been a very charismatic person, for how else could a common gardener turned royal cupbearer rise so quickly and eventually depose a king? We may never know how a self-proclaimed commoner like Sargon of Akkad really rose to power, 
but scholars are pretty certain of what happened after he became the king of Kish. Of the several copies of inscriptions attributed to Sargon that record his campaigns of conquest, the most well-known one reads as follows. Sargon, the king of Akkad, the bailiff of Ishtar, the king of the universe, the anointed one of An, the king of the land, the governor of Enlil. He vanquished Uruk in battle and smote fifty governors and the city by the mace of the god Ilaba. And he destroyed its fortress and captured Lugal Zagezi, the king of Uruk, in battle. He led him to the gate of Enlil in a neckstock. Sargon, king of the land, to whom Enlil has given no rival. To him he gave the upper and lower sea. Indeed, from the lower sea to the upper sea, the inhabitants of the land of Akkad hold governorships. Sargon, king of the world, was victorious in 34 battles. He destroyed city walls all the way to the shore of the sea. Of course, as charismatic and capable as Sargon may have been, he couldn't conquer so many places alone. In addition to what must have been the conscripts who made up his regular foot soldiers, Sargon seems to have traveled with and been protected by a core of loyal followers that may have acted as his own personal private army. One text makes reference to this force. Sargon, king of the world, he to whom Enlil gave no rival. 5,400 men eat daily before him. Sargon didn't stop with Sumer and Mesopotamia. From the port of Guaba on the shores of the Persian Gulf, he and his men sailed to the mouth of, and then up, the Karun River in southwestern Iran into the lowlands of Elam, eventually capturing the city of Susa and the areas of Arawa and Sabu. Such rapid expansion of the Akkadians into Elam rattled the Elamites in the highlands, such as the rulers of Awan and the eastern kingdom of Marhashi. The Elamite side was led by its king, Haship Rashini, while Marhashi sent a force under the command of its king's brother, Prince Dagu. Sargon claims to have defeated both armies, as his title in one inscription reads, Sargon, king of the world, conqueror of Elam and Marhashum. There's no record of Sargon leading troops further east into Marhashi, but he probably demanded some sort of tribute and recognition of himself as that region's overlord in exchange for peace. To the west, Sargon took the cities of Mari, Aleppo, and Ebla in modern-day Syria. He may have even ventured as far north as the mountains of southwestern Anatolia. One well-known piece of Akkadian literature is called The King of Battle. It describes a military campaign waged by Sargon of Akkad against the wealthy city of Purushanda. Copies of the text have been found not just in Babylonia and Assyria, but also amongst the archives of the Hittite capital of Hattusha 
as well as at the site of Tel el Amarna in Egypt. As most of the copies date to the 14th century BC or later, it's believed that they were probably used as teaching materials for scribes learning how to read and write in the Akkadian language, which by then had been the lingua franca of the Near East for centuries. The story tells of how Sargon came to the aid of merchants in the remote but wealthy city of Purushanda in the mountains of southern Anatolia, despite protests from his men, who complained about the hardships that such a journey and the subsequent campaign would have entailed. Sargon, though, was undeterred, and in the end forced Purushanda's king, Nurdugal, to submit to him. Realizing that he had underestimated Sargon all along, Nurdugal proclaimed, what land of all lands rivals Akkad? What king rivals you? Your adversary does not exist. Like many other stories about Sargon, the King of Battle is not a historical document and should be treated with the usual skepticism. But again, there is probably some truth to it as the armies of Sargon may have indeed ventured as far north as the rich mining areas of southern Anatolia. Answering the call of merchants is also something that Sargon may have done, as the free flow of trade had become extremely important to his new empire. While Sargon was obviously a capable warrior, his real genius was his ability to administrate the large, multicultural domain that he'd conquered the likes of which the world, up until then, had never seen. His was a true international empire. The main challenge for Sargon was having people of different backgrounds with well-established traditions submit to his authority as well as that of the new ruling class. This was especially difficult in the Sumerian heartland. Over time, no group lost more influence whether political or cultural, than the leaders and people of the once powerful Sumerian city-states, whose first allegiance was to their respective patron deities and age-old temple institutions. To deal with the Sumerians, who through constant revolts had made their opposition to the new Akkadian regime quite clear, Sargon broke the power of their priesthood, the local Enses, and the Sumerian nobility by replacing them with loyal Akkadian governors and strongmen who reported directly to him. Temple lands were reorganized and redistributed to the Akkadian regime's supporters. Such actions were a huge blow to the priesthood because up until then, such property had been their main source of income, power, and influence. One example of this is that Sargon put his own daughter, the princess Enheduanna, in charge of the great temple complex dedicated to the moon god, Nana, in the city of Ur. This allowed her, and by extension, Sargon, to oversee and control its wealthy endowment. Enheduanna, though, was not just the head priestess of one of the largest religious endowments of the ancient world, but also a highly accomplished poet. In fact, she's the first author in world literature to whom specific writings can be attributed to. 
while the original documents containing her poetry, dating to the Akkadian period, haven't survived. Later copies of them have been discovered in various Neo-Sumerian, Babylonian, and Assyrian archives, dating to several centuries later. Though she was given the position of the High Priestess of Nana at Ur, most of her devotional poetry is dedicated to the goddess Inanna, whose Akkadian name is Ishtar. In one of her works dedicated to the goddess and entitled Queen of All Cosmic Powers, Enheduanna tells us that a usurper named Lugal-Ani, who revolted against the Akkadian throne, demanded that she swear allegiance to him. As Enheduanna was the daughter of Sargon and the aunt of the then current king Naram-Sin, who we'll meet later on, she refused, and so Lugalani kicked her out of Nana's temple and had her exiled from Ur. These events probably occurred around 2250 BC during the Great Revolt against Naram-Sin. In the end, the Akkadians took back Ur, and Enheduanna was reinstated as the High Priestess of Nana. However, she felt abandoned by the god that she'd been serving in Ur, and instead credited Inanna for her return. In the poem, Queen of All Cosmic Powers, Enheduanna highlights Inanna's magnificence and anger towards her enemies. Part of the poem reads, My lady, with your force, a tooth good chip a stone, you charge forward with the onrush of a tempest. Not one can stand up to your furious glare, not one can face your furious brow. Who can calm your angry heart? Calming your angry heart is far too much to do. Controlling the political and religious institutions of the lands he conquered was one thing, but to create greater cohesion amongst all of his subjects, not just Akkadians, but also Sumerians, Elamites, Eblites, and the others living within his ever-expanding realm, Sargon made the Akkadian language the official one for all administrative purposes. With this, the Akkadian language soon spread far and wide, and within a few decades, it became the lingua franca of the entire region, a status which it held for the next 1500 years until it was gradually replaced by Aramaean. Another extremely significant act of Sargon was the establishment of a new capital city called Agade. Though a settlement may have already existed there before it became the political center of the Akkadian Empire, Agade hadn't been around for very long. Since the city's name was not written with a pre-Akkadian word sign, similar to those of the already ancient cities of Uruk, Ur, and Kish. The exact location of Agade has never been found by archaeologists, and so we have no material evidence to corroborate any of the numerous accounts from antiquity that describe just how marvelous the city once was. Along with having a port, we know from references in various documents that it contained a royal palace and a temple dedicated to the goddess Ishtar called the Yulmash. The poem known as The Curse of Agade 
though written several centuries after the city had reportedly been destroyed, may give us a glimpse of how later generations in antiquity remembered the Akkadian capital. That its populace dine on the best of food. That its populace draw the best of drinks. That a person fresh washed make merry in the courtyard. That people throng the festival grounds. That people who knew each other feast together. That outsiders circle like outlandish birds of prey aloft. That even farthest Marhashi be writ once more on tribute lists. That monkey, monstrous elephant, buffalo, beasts of exotic climes, rub shoulders in the broad streets with dogs and lions, mountain ibex and shaggy sheep. Holy Inanna never stopped to rest. Then did she pack Agade's very granaries with gold. Its gleaming granaries did she pack with silver. She delivered copper, tin, and blocks of lapis lazuli even to its barns, sealed them up in silos like heaps of grain. Many scholars believe that Agade may have been near the confluence of the Tigris and Diyala rivers near what's today Baghdad, Iraq. The new capital became both the political and economic hub of the sprawling Akkadian Empire and attracted vessels from the distant corners of the known world, including Meluha, which was believed to have been part of the Indus Valley civilization, the land of Magan, located in what's today mostly the country of Oman, and Dilmun, which occupied the modern island nation of Bahrain. One of Sargon's inscriptions informs us, He moored boats of Meluha, Magan, and Dilmun at the wharf of Agade. Sargon the king bowed down and prayed to Dagan in Tutul. He gave him the upper land, Mari, Iarmuti, and Ebla, all the way to the cedar forest and the shining mountain. The cedar forest is believed to have been a reference to the forests of Lebanon, whose cedar trees were prized by many ancient civilizations of the Near East. The Shining or Silver Mountains may be a reference to the Taurus mountain range of southern Anatolia. In effect, Sargon is claiming that his domain extended to what for the Akkadians was the very ends of the known world. Like the details of his birth, those of his death are shrouded in mystery. As there's no indication that the great king died in battle, most scholars today assume that he passed away, probably in his 70s, due to natural causes. The Sumerian king list only tells us, In Agade, Sargon, whose father was a gardener, the cupbearer of Urzababa, became king the king of Agade, who built Agade, reigned for 56 years. No ruler before Sargon had ever claimed to have done so much in so little time, and he became the source of emulation for nearly all of the future warrior kings of Mesopotamia until perhaps Alexander the Great, nearly two millennia later. In their minds, he was the greatest ruler of all time.
We're often told in various texts that Enlil gave him no rival. But the truth is, his authority was periodically challenged by many who resented Akkadian domination of their lands. While Sargon may have had his fair share of revolts to suppress, the greatest challenges to Akkadian rule would come after his death. Sargon had several children, the five that we know about being his four sons, Manishtushu, Rimush, Ibarum, Anabaishtakal, and his daughter, Enheduanna. Despite being the eldest son, Sargon did not choose Manishtushu to succeed him. Instead, his younger brother, Rimush, ascended the throne in 2278 BC to become the new ruler of Akkad. History is silent as to why this may have been the case, but Sargon may have sensed that at his death, the dissatisfied within his empire would challenge whoever came after him by seeking to secede and possibly destroy what he'd worked so hard to create. Perhaps he felt that Rimush's temperament and abilities were better suited with the task of preserving and expanding the empire after he was gone. The same year that Rimush became king, several cities in Sumer, including Ur, Lagash, Adab, Zabala, Uma, and Kedingira, staged massive uprisings against the Akkadian regime. The leaders of the various rebellions were counting on the fact that Rimush was young and relatively inexperienced. However, they seem to have underestimated him. Leaving Agade, Rimush marched with tens of thousands of men south into Sumer to re-establish Akkadian dominion over it. By his own accounts, he brutally suppressed each city and unabashedly reported the numbers of those slain and enslaved as if they were his stats in some sort of blood sport. Several of his inscriptions uncovered from the city of Nippur tell us, Rimush, king of the world, was victorious over Ur and Lagash in battle and slew 8,040 men. He took 5,460 captives. Further, he captured Kaku, king of Ur, and Gitish Id, governor of Lagash, and conquered their cities and destroyed their walls. Further, he expelled 5,985 men from their cities and put them in a camp. Rimush, king of the world, was victorious over Adab and Zabala in battle and slew 15,718 men. He took 14,576 captives. Further, he captured Meskigal, governor of Adab, and Lugal Galzu, governor of Zabala. He conquered their cities and destroyed their walls. Whoever shall make away with this inscription, may Enlil and Shamash tear out his foundations and take away his seed. These must not have been easy campaigns for Rimush, because several times he had to return to a few of the cities he'd previously pacified to put down new rebellions. While he was in Sumer, 
the city of Kazalu in Akkad rose up in rebellion. Being an Akkadian city did not spare it from Rimush's wrath, and it suffered much the same fate as the Sumerian ones. Another one of his inscriptions tells us, During his return, Kazalu was in rebellion. He conquered it and slew 12,052 men inside Kazalu. He took 5,862 prisoners. Further, he captured Asharid, governor of Kazalu, and destroyed its walls. Rimush then goes on to tell us how many people he killed and captured for that particular year. Total, 54,016 men, including the slain, including the captives, including the men put in camps. The campaign is not lies. By the gods Shamash and Ilaba, I swear no lies. Sumer was not the only place on record to have attempted to throw off the Akkadian yoke. In the east, there was a coalition led by the rulers of Elam and Marhashi to remove the Akkadian presence from their lands. Rimush tells us of the ensuing battle that followed, and its outcome. Rimush, king of the world, was victorious in battle over Abalgamash, king of Marhashum. Sahar, Elam, Gupin, and Miluha assembled in Marhashum for battle, but he was victorious and slew 16,212 men. He took 4,216 captives. Further, he captured Emasini, king of Elam, and all of Elam. Further, he captured Sidgau, general of Marhashum, and Shargapi, general of Zahara. Between Awan and Susa, at the river in the middle, Further, he heaped up a burial mound over them in the place of a city. Further, he conquered the cities of Elam and destroyed their walls and tore out the foundations of Marhashum from the land of Elam. Rimush, king of the world, became ruler of Elam as Enlil revealed. Rimush, king of the world, he to whom Enlil gave no rival. That same year, 2275 BC, the third year of his reign, Rimush swore to the gods Shamash and Ilaba that he killed 74,444 men. Rimush would also commemorate his victories with statues of himself made of tin, which in those days was perhaps the most coveted metal in Mesopotamia. One of these statues was set up in the holy city of Nippur and had the following words inscribed upon it. On the occasion of this battle, he made a statue of himself and dedicated it to Enlil for his well-being. Whoever shall make away with this inscription, may Enlil and Shamash tear out his foundations and take away his seed. Whoever shall remove the name of Rimush, king of the world, and set his own name there, saying, My statue, may Enlil, owner of this statue, and Shamash, 
tear out his foundations, and take away his seed. It's difficult to really know the mind of a man who lived over 43 centuries ago, but just by his inscriptions alone, as well as the many statues he claims to have commissioned for himself, many scholars have concluded that Rimouche was a megalomaniac who prided himself on being the most savage of warmongers. Constant warfare, though, was not good for any state in the long run especially one whose economy increasingly benefited from international trade and commerce. Sargon knew this, and so he spent a considerable amount of effort in administrating his growing empire. However, much of this seems to have been lost on his son and successor. At the rate that Rimush was slaughtering cities and their people, there would be little left to govern. Those in the upper echelons of Akkadian society must have been worried about the long-term effects of Rimush's seemingly reckless actions. Perhaps it was for this reason that Rimush was assassinated in 2270 BC. The instrument of death wasn't a dagger or poison, but according to one source, cylinder seals. One might wonder how such a small object could harm anyone but generally when people of authority carried cylinder seals, they were suspended around their necks on ropes or attached to their cloaks with long pins, meaning that Rimouche could have been strangled or stabbed to death. While no motive is given in any historical text, Rimouche probably had many enemies, one of them possibly being his elder brother, Manish Tushu. Some have theorized that he was likely to have orchestrated his brother's murder for two main reasons. One is that he and others around him may have genuinely believed that Rimouche was steering the Akkadian Empire to ruin and needed to be replaced. The other is that as the older sibling, Manish Tushu may have held a great deal of resentment towards his younger brother, who had become king instead of him. Historically, even in ancient Mesopotamia, kingship was generally considered to have been the birthright of a deceased ruler's eldest surviving son. In 2269 BC, Manish Tushu started his first year as king of Akkad. Like his brother, he too had to deal with domestic unrest and rebellions throughout the empire's many conquered territories, but he was ultimately able to deal with them. He even claims to have expanded the empire's borders further into southern and eastern Iran. From there, Manish Tushu may have sailed across the Persian Gulf to the area of Magan in order to obtain diorite and other valuable resources that were rare in Mesopotamia. Though few inscriptions of his have been discovered, one of those that has tells us the following. Manish Tushu, king of the world, when he conquered Anshan and Shirihum, had warships cross the lower sea. The cities beyond the sea, 32 of them, assembled for battle, but he was victorious. Further, he conquered their cities. He slew their rulers. Further, he took away all the way to the silver mines. 
He quarried and loaded on boats the black stone of the mountains beyond the lower sea, and moored them at the wharf of Agade. He made a statue of himself. He dedicated it to Enlil. This seems to be the only reference to any of Manish Tushu's military campaigns during his 15-year reign. Many scholars are of the opinion that Manish Tushu focused more on building up his empire rather than tearing down the parts that rose up in rebellion. Evidence of this doesn't necessarily come from his time, but references to him in later documents and inscriptions. The king, Shamshi Adad I, who ruled parts of northern Mesopotamia from 1796 to 1775 BC, mentions a temple in Nineveh dedicated to the goddess Ishtar that Manishtushu founded, while a later Babylonian text describes a temple dedicated to the god Shamash in Sippar that was consecrated by him. After 15 years on the throne, Manishtushu was assassinated in a palace conspiracy that ultimately left his son, Naram-Sin, as king of Akkad. He would go down in history as being possibly the greatest, as well as the most controversial, of all Akkadian kings. He's best known for his many campaigns of conquest and expansion, the first of which perhaps started in the moments after he became the new ruler of the Akkadian Empire in 2254 BC. History once again repeated itself with another round of revolts against the new Akkadian overlord. Instead of the rather independent and isolated pockets of resistance that had plagued his predecessors, this new insurrection was a more coordinated effort organized by the leaders of several important cities. Known as the Great Revolt, it would become the defining crisis of Naram-Sin's reign. While the original inscriptions are lost to us, Naram-Sin's words describing the situation were recorded by scribes who had access to them during the Old Babylonian period. Several copies of these were discovered at the sites of ancient Nippur, Mari, Eshnuna, and other places. In them, Naram-Sin tells us the following about the Great Revolt and how he dealt with it. Naram-Sin, the mighty king, the king of Akkad, the king of the four quarters of the world. Kish, Kuta, Tiwa, Urnmu, Kazalu, Kiritab, Apiak, Ibarat, Dilbat, Uruk, and Sippar together revolted against me. Of all of these cities, Naram-Sin took the revolt of Kish personally. He mentions how his grandfather, Sargon, rescued Kish, the city that the Akkadian Empire's founder had first started his political career in as the cupbearer of Urzababa. Naram-Sin goes on to tell us, At the time when Sargon, my forefather, defeated Uruk, he established freedom for the people of Kish, shaved off the hairstyles that identified them as slaves, and broke their fetters. Kish was not an enemy. It was an ally to me. The rest of the text is missing several parts, but what we learn from it is that Naram-Sin 
faced the leaders and commanders of the various cities in several battles and defeated all of them. Parts of the existing prose read like an epic, and though a bit long, it's worth listening to. Naram-Sin, the mighty, king of the four quarters of the earth. In Kish, they raised up Ipur-Kish to kingship, and in Uruk, they raised up Amar-Jirid to kingship as well. Ipur-Kish, king of Kish, raised an army against me and mobilized Kish, Kuta, Tiwa, Sipar, Kazalu, Kiritab, Apiak, and the Amorite Highlanders. Naram-Sin the Mighty was victorious over the Kishite in the battle at Tiwa. Further, he pursued him all the way to Kish, and, beside Kish, at the gate of Ninkarak, they made battle and fought each other a second time. Further, he filled the Euphrates River with them and conquered the city of Kish and destroyed its walls. Further, he made the river run over inside it and slew 2,525 men in the city. Further, he, Amarjirid, king of Uruk, raised an army against me and mobilized Uruk, Ur, Lagash, Uma, Adab, Shurupuk, Isin, Nippur, all the way from the lower sea. By the verdict of Ishtar, Anunitum, and Anu, Naramsin the Mighty was victorious over the Urukite in battle. The rest of the text recounts similar battles with the same result, specifically total victory for Naramsin and his men. Naramsin and the Akkadian capital of Agade had been surrounded by enemies on all sides and at any time could have been destroyed, but miraculously, he delivered his people to victory at every turn, which made him appear to have been superhuman to all of those around him. Naram-Sin just couldn't lose, and after every battle, appeared to be stronger than before. Such resounding successes, though, went to his head, and greatly inflated his ego, for afterward, he deified himself to become the god of the city of Agade. On the base of a large copper statue discovered in the village of Basetki, about 40 miles northwest of the city of Mosul, Iraq, Naram-Sin had the following words inscribed. Naram-Sin, the Mighty One, the King of Akkad. When the four regions of the world revolted against him as one, by the love which Ishtar showed him, he was victorious in nine battles in a single year and captured those kings who had risen up against him. Because he fortified the foundations of his city, which was in the line of danger, the residents of his city asked of Ishtar in the Iyana, of Enlil in Nippur, of Dagan in Tutul, of Ninhursag in Kish, of Enki in Eridu, of Sin in Ur, of Shamash in Sippar, and of Nurgal in Kutta that he be the god of their city, Agade, and they built his temple within Agade. While he may have deified himself to become the god of Agade, Naram-Sin made sure to also give the other great deities of Mesopotamia's vast pantheon their due. 
There are several records that credit him for building temples dedicated to the goddess Ishtar in Nineveh and Zabala, to the god Nana, or Sin, in Ur, and of course, for the chief of them all, Enlil, whose sanctuary, the Ikur, he made sure to renovate and expand. The Ikur wasn't just any temple or religious sanctuary. It was the most important place of worship for the people of ancient Mesopotamia in the 3rd millennium BC. One could think of the Ikur as the ancient equivalent of St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. It was a large and extremely important structure whose construction and upkeep were not taken lightly. Documents detailing the Ikur's renovation have been uncovered, and they indicate that Naramsin's son, the crown prince Sharkalishari, oversaw the project. We're told that hundreds of kilograms of bronze, gold, and silver, along with several tons of copper, and plenty of cedar wood, were used in the Ikur's refurbishment. One tablet lists 77 woodworkers, 86 goldsmiths with six foremen, 10 sculptors with one foreman, numerous engravers, and at least 54 carpenters working under three foremen. Those are sizable numbers, but there were probably many more specialists. The project wasn't even completed during Naram Sin's lifetime, but that of his successor, Sharkalishari. Economic and administrative texts dating to the reign of Naram Sin indicate that the Elamite territories of Susa, Arawa, and Oruaz were all under the direct control of an Akkadian governor who resided in Susa. To support him was an Akkadian garrison also stationed in that city. The text also indicate that these areas had become increasingly Akkadianized. For example, most of the individuals mentioned in such documents either had Akkadian or even Sumerian names, but there are very few Elamite ones. It may have been that the former were transplants from parts of Mesopotamia, with the Elamites having few positions of authority, and this may have added to the friction between the two communities. The population in Susa had also grown to the point where it had become dependent upon southern Mesopotamia for food. Administrative texts show that large quantities of barley were imported from the cities of Uma and Lagash. Naram-Sin and his Akkadian governors may not have trusted their Elamite subjects, but they still needed the support of the country's local elites to rule effectively. One example of this is a rather unique tablet, written not in Akkadian, but in a cuneiform version of the Elamite language, and discovered amongst the ruins of a temple dedicated to the god in Shushinak, who was one of the more prominent deities within the Elamite pantheon. Some have called it a treaty, but it's more like a list of commandments given by Naram-Sin to one of his vassals. The text is badly damaged and difficult to read in some places, but basically, he commands an unnamed individual, who some believe might have been the Elamite king Hitha of Awan, to provide troops for Naram-Sin, as well as set up statues of him in Susa's temples. The most famous line from the document reads, The enemy of Naram-Sin is my enemy. The friend of Naram-Sin is my friend. Hita, 
if indeed this document was meant for him, is the 11th king listed on a later Babylonian document known as the Awan King List. With Elam, Marhashi, and the East secured, Naram-Sin also made sure to further consolidate his hold over places in the West as far away as modern Lebanon and the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. One of his inscriptions tells us of his battles there. Whereas, for all time since the establishment of the human race, no king among all kings whatsoever destroyed Armanum and Ebla. By the weapon of Nergal, Naram-Sin the mighty opened the way, and he gave him Armanum and Ebla. Further, he gave him the Amanus, the Cedar Mountains, and the Upper Sea. The most famous depiction of the warrior king Naram-Sin is on a large, two-meter-tall stela. Discovered in the Elamite city of Susa, and known today as the Victory Stela of Naram-Sin, it depicts the Akkadian ruler just after defeating a mountain tribe known as the Lulubi, who were most likely from somewhere in the western Zagros Mountains. They must have been just one of the many peoples subjugated by the Akkadians on their seemingly unending campaigns of conquest. It's one thing to conquer and subjugate new territories, but quite another to govern and run them efficiently. The older models of administration started under Sargon and continued by his sons were improved upon and reached peak levels of efficiency under Naram-Sin. Sargon had set up a system whereby, after a foreign territory was annexed into the realm, an Akkadian governor was installed to oversee the new province. The governor, who answered directly to the king in Nagade, was accompanied by military personnel and administrators to help him maintain order. Such a setup eventually created a class of elite officials who were indebted to the crown for their livelihood. The chief civilian administrator of the Akkadian Empire was the Shaperum, or steward of the royal household. Below him was the land registrar, who was accountable for all of the farmland belonging to the royal household. You can think of him as the ancient equivalent of the Secretary of Agriculture. While today such a title may not seem very significant, for the Akkadian Empire, whose economy was primarily an agrarian one, it was perhaps the most important civilian post that one could hold. Along with overseeing the empire's food security, the Shaperum also acted as a sort of economic minister because taxes were primarily paid by the people in quantities of grain, cattle, sheep, and goats. Important individuals such as governors, leading generals, the Shaperum, and other high-ranking officials often received land as part of their payment or as a reward for their service. Such men also had the privilege of buying more land if they could afford it. Before Sargon, land in places such as Sumer, Elam, and most likely other areas of the Near East was primarily owned and managed by the all-powerful temple institutions, followed by local elites, and then lesser nobility. The Akkadians, though, confiscated much of this land, or, in a best-case scenario, paid a little bit for it. 
One example of how this was done comes from the now-famous monument known as the Black Obelisk of Manishtushu. It essentially records the sale of land to the king, in this case Manishtushu, at the price of about only two years' harvest, which was preposterous. No farmer would willingly sell his ancestral property for so little, but in this case, he probably didn't have much of a choice. The king's offer for what amounted to 3,430 hectares of land, a huge sum in those days, could not have been refused. Or else, there would probably have been some unpleasant consequences for the land's soon-to-be former owner. The inscription on the obelisk records that 49 men, including administrators, governors, military officials, scribes, and temple staff, witnessed the sale, and probably a good number of those present who were affiliated with the Akkadian regime were to be given parts of this land as a reward for their service and to further ensure their loyalty. It also drastically reduced the economic power and influence of the various temple sanctuaries and their respective institutions, something which seems to have hit Sumer the hardest. The use of the Akkadian language in official business was one way that the regime sought to further unify the realm. Another was the universal standardization of weights and measures. Record-keeping also became standardized. Instead of the thick, circular tablets found in Sumer that were common during the era of the early dynastic period, by Naram Sin's day, the tablets were shaped into squares or rectangles for composite records and ledgers and they were also much thinner. Even the handwriting changed. Along with appearing more elegant, the angle and orientation of the cuneiform signs was rotated 90 degrees clockwise for most documents and inscriptions, the exception being for monuments and certain styles of art. The spelling of many words, including Sumerian ones, was revised to make them easier to read and write. Thus, if a scribe wanted to keep his job, at least for government work, then he had to learn the new method of writing. Though the form of the document and orientation of the script had to be the same, the local, non-Akkadian language was still used in some instances. For example, in Sumer, Sumerian was still utilized for local purposes and religious texts. We also saw earlier that the pact between Naram-Sin and Hita of Awan was written in Elamite using a cuneiform script that was developed in Mesopotamia. The reason for this was a practical one. As learning cuneiform itself was an art that took many years to master, forcing Sumerian, Elamite, or Eblaite scribes to become proficient in a new style of writing, along with an entirely new language such as Akkadian, may have been asking too much of them. During Naram-Sin's reign, the style of cylinder seals also changed and appear to have become more personalized with scenes of combat, mythology, or nature, basically depicting whatever the seal's owner seemed to be fond of. As far as we know, Naram-Sin had at least ten children. His firstborn son, the crown prince, Sharkalishari, often campaigned with him, and as mentioned earlier, was given the great and prestigious task of supervising the renovation of the Ikur in Nippur. 
Another of his sons, named Nabi Ulmash, was made the governor of Chutub in Akkad. Naram-Sin also had several daughters, three of whom were given important religious roles, as well as the control of several holy sanctuaries. His daughter, Tutanabshum, became the high priestess of Enlil at Nippur, while Enmenana took her aunt Enheduanna's position as the high priestess of the moon god, Nana, also known as Sin in Akkadian. A third daughter, Shumshani, became the high priestess of the sun god, Utu, whose name in Akkadian is Shamash. At least two other daughters of Naram-Sin were married off to lesser rulers of client kingdoms whose allegiance was to Agade. A seal of one of them, Taramagade, whose name means she loves Agade, was found at Urkesh, the site of a Hurrian kingdom in what's today northern Syria. It's believed that she must have been married to one of Urkesh's rulers or princes. Another daughter, Simat Ulmash, meaning Pride of Ulmash, was married to a ruler or prince of Mari. Some evidence has also led a few scholars to speculate that to further integrate Elam into the fold, Naram-Sin married a princess from Susa. There's also some evidence indicating that one of his other sons may have married a princess from Marhashi. By essentially making the local rulers of such areas extended members of the Akkadian royal family, Naram-Sin believed that such diplomatic marriages made them less likely to participate in any future revolts against the crown. While Naram-Sin may have portrayed himself as a god, he ended up being mortal after all. As far as we know, he died without fanfare, most likely of natural causes, in 2218 BC. He was succeeded by his son, Shar Kalishari. Unlike those of Rimush, Manishtushu, and Naram-Sin himself, the transition from one king to another passed smoothly, as there were no revolts in any part of the empire recorded, nor was there any dispute about the royal succession. This may have been because Naram-Sin seems to have groomed Shar Kalishari as his replacement. Around 2219 BC, Shar Kalishari was coronated in Nippur, a city that he had spent much time in during the renovations being carried out at the Ikur. It's during his reign that we first hear of another city, Babylon. The city appears in texts as the construction site of two new temples, one for the goddess Ishtar and another for the god Ilaba. Babylon may have begun its slow but steady rise to prominence during this time due to Naram-Sin's sacking of nearby Kish during the Great Revolt. Though Shar Kalishari's reign may have started with some stability, it certainly didn't end that way. Enemies, old and new, started to chip away at the Akkadian state around its periphery, and soon he found himself surrounded by conflicts on several fronts. There were battles with Amorites in the Jebel Bishri region in what's today central Syria, as well as attacks from Elamites, surprisingly, deep into Mesopotamia, which indicates that Akkadian authority in Elam, if not completely dislodged, was on a very insecure footing. And then there were the Gutians, a people from the central Zagros Mountains. According to later Mesopotamian tradition, 
they were ultimately responsible for the downfall of the Akkadian Empire. There are no contemporary historical documents from Mesopotamia outlining the fall of the Akkadian Empire, but the collective memory of events contributing to it can be found in later literature, especially those compiled during the Neo-Sumerian era from about 2112 to 2004 BC. One example comes from a popular literary work called The Curse of Agade. While not a historical document, and rife with many fictional elements as well as claims that archaeology today has refuted, it does show us what the popular perception of the Gutians was in Sumer and Akkad during the late 3rd millennium BC. Gutium, a race who know no order. Made like humans, but with the brains of dogs, the shapes of apes. These Enlil brought down from the mountains. Like a plague of locusts, they scoured the land. Nothing escaped their reach. No one was beyond their power. We should keep in mind that the Gutians were also the historical enemies of the early Neo-Sumerian kings and so literary works, such as the Curse of Agade, are extremely biased against them. Most scholars today also believe that they were probably not the root cause of the Akkadian Empire's downfall, which may have been due to several factors. For example, geological data indicates that a possible catalyst for the demise of the primarily agrarian Akkadian state may have been years perhaps even decades, of devastating drought and famine throughout Mesopotamia and much of the Near East towards the end of Sharkalishari's reign. Ever so poetically, the Curse of Agade also describes such calamities in Akkad during that time. The great farming tracts brought forth no grain. The irrigated farming tracts brought forth no fish. The well-watered orchard brought forth neither syrup nor wine. The gathering clouds brought no rain. Not even weeds would grow. In such conditions, it would have been extremely difficult for any ruler to keep such a large empire together. As it fell apart, non-state actors and mountain peoples such as the Gutians raided Akkadian lands and ultimately made it to the capital of Agade itself, which, as later texts make clear, they destroyed. But exactly when this occurred, and the specifics of the Akkadian Empire's demise, are still unclear. The Sumerian king list only tells us that after Shar Kalishari, there were several men who recognized themselves as king within the span of just a few years. One translation of the king list tells us, Shar Kalishari, the son of Naram-Sin, reigned for 25 years. Then, who was king? Who was not king? Irgigi was king. Nanum was king. Imi was king. Ilulu was king. In sum, four kings reigned for three years. Dudu reigned for 21 years. Shudurol the son of Dudu, reigned for 15 years. In sum, 11 kings reigned for 181 years. Then Agade was defeated, and the kingship was taken to Uruk. 
The Sumerian king list asks, Then who was king? Who was not king? Which can be interpreted as Sharkalishari not having a clear successor. Four kings ruling within the span of just three years is also an indication of political instability, and it seems clear that there was constant infighting within the political class for the throne of Agade. There are fragments of archaeological evidence for the last two kings of Agade, but little else. One is a macehead with the name of Shudurul, while another is a vase with an inscription that simply reads, Dudu the Mighty, King of Agade. How much territory any of these kings controlled outside of the city of Agade is unknown. There's also nothing to indicate that any of the kings of Agade on the Sumerian king list after Sharkalishari were from the line of Sargon of Akkad. Thus, most scholars end the Akkadian dynasty of Sargon with Sharkalishari in 2193 BC. Whether due to Gutian hordes, drought, famine, or a combination of these and other things, by about 2150 BC, what had once been the glorious Akkadian Empire was long gone. However, what the great kings of Akkad left behind would influence not just Mesopotamia, but the whole Near East for nearly two millennia. During that time, Sargon and Naram-Sin would continue to be remembered as two of the ancient world's most powerful rulers, though at times, the events of Naram-Sin's life were twisted to serve as cautionary tales about the dangers of hubris and disrespecting the gods. Sargon's military accomplishments would inspire nearly all of the rulers who came after him to establish not only great, but well-managed empires of their own. Culturally, the lands of Akkad, Sumer, Elam, and all of the other territories once controlled by Agade were never the same. The Akkadian language would remain the dominant tongue throughout Mesopotamia and become the lingua franca for a region that stretched from Egypt and western Anatolia to eastern Iran and the borders of the Indus Valley civilization. That wraps up this program. I hope that you enjoyed it, and there's a lot more on the way with regard to ancient history, so be sure to subscribe. Thanks for watching. Also, shout out to Irina from the channel Ancient Sites Girl, who was the voice of Enheduanna. Check out her channel to travel to and learn more about some of the most interesting and often hard to visit archaeological sites of the world. I'd also really like to thank the channel's patrons for making videos like this possible. These include, but are certainly not limited to, Grandkeck69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, Danny Van Eck, Wanix TV, Robert Morgan, Strobex, Frank, Tim Lane, Sebastian Otaro Korea, Michael Trudell, Leader Titan, Micah G, John Scarberry, Andrew Bomer, Connor Dolson, Krish, David R, Stephen Ball, Gabe, Monty Grimes, Franz Robbins, Cyrus Mir, Dianastra, Nimrod Nir, Hypnosan, Brendan Redman, Faridun Dadachanji, Jimmy Daruwala, Anahita Debu, Gulistan Debu, Sher Kam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link 
in the video description to find out more. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and X, formerly known as Twitter, as well as continue to listen to special audio programs on the History with Sai podcast. Thanks again, and stay safe.